All right, good afternoon. So um, we are very fortunate to have with us today Dr. Masur. So Dr. Henry Masur is the, um, he's the Chief of Critical Care Medicine at the National Institutes of Health. He has an expertise both in critical care medicine and in HIV AIDS, and he is here to t today to talk to us about the management of uh, HIV and AIDS-related opportunistic infections in the intensive care unit. Well, thanks very much, uh, Andrea. I, I'm never certain when I come to talk here why everybody sits in absolutely the back row. Uh, and uh, I think maybe it's so that I can't call on you because I can barely see you. But uh, I'll see if there's somebody back there I can call on. But uh, uh, I'm always pleased to come to the University of Maryland because certainly our critical care programs have a lot in common. We have a number of residents from your house staff who are with us. Uh, we have a number of our graduates who are here on the faculty. Uh, and outside of pulmonary critical care and ID, uh, we have a big program I'll show you a few slides about here in D.C., uh, focusing on how to reduce the burden of HIV in D.C. And interestingly enough, 100 percent of our employees in our D.C. project are University of Maryland um, uh, employees in the ID faculty. So I think in many ways uh, the Department of Medicine has a lot in common with our department at NIH. So what Andrea asked me to talk about is HIV-related opportunistic infections. And it really depends on where you practice medicine as to whether the fellows and the faculty have a lot of experience with HIV or not. Uh, I'm sure here in downtown Baltimore you see a lot of uh, opportunistic infections. So what I'd like to do is sort of strike a balance between uh, what is standard of care and what some of the newer issues are about diagnosis and therapy uh, during the course of the hour. But I think it's, it's probably important just to make sure that we all share the same basic information about how to manage uh, opportunistic infections. So the opportunistic infections that are HIV-related uh, are going to be things that you're going to deal with, I think, for most of your professional careers. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the common ones here. One of the things that I think historically is worth just noting in that uh, in a complex medical center like this, you see a lot of transplants, you see people on biologics, the people who get all sorts of opportunistic infections, but the opportunistic infections you see in different populations really are different. And when HIV first came along in the 1980s, it was a biologic curiosity as to why they got certain infections and why they didn't. For instance, you might have assumed that because listeria is an intracellular pathogen, you would have seen listeriosis, listeria meningitis in this population. You don't. I mean, you'll see a case once in a while, but no more often than anyone else. You might have thought you'd see disseminated zoster or you'd see disseminated simplex. You don't. What you see is pneumocystis and toxo and cryptomeningitis and some diseases which actually I had never seen until AIDS came along, CMV retinitis, Mycobacterium avium. People knew almost nothing about Mycobacterium avium or Cryptosporidia until HIV came along. Part of that's new to do, due to new diagnostics, but part of it is the immunologic lesion in this disease is different from what you see in stem cell transplants or organ transplants or patients on CAMPATH. Every immunosuppressive disorder has a little different... Uh, uh, impact on the immune system. So this is a very unique constellation of infections. And again, before we understood as much as we understand about the immunology now, if you saw these diseases in somebody who was previously healthy, almost always this was HIV. And certainly once there was a test for HIV, 
this warranted uh, blood test. So we'll talk about the common things. And the question is, what are the common infections? It is surprisingly difficult in the United States to get a sense of how many opportunistic infections are occurring because they aren't reportable to the CDC. So I did the next best thing here. Uh, we edit the NIH, uh, CDC, uh, IDSA guidelines on HIV-related opportunistic infections. So I looked to see what are the pages that people look at the most commonly. And you can see here, although the prints are small, pneumocystis, mycobacterium, toxo, and crypt are the ones that people open up the most. And it's interesting that if you look at whether or not your investment of time and money in these guidelines is important, there are about 500,000 uh, page views per year of these guidelines. So people use them. But I assume there must be a fair amount of pneumocystis and toxo and crypt out there because people look at these guidelines uh, pages uh, regularly. Now, there are two things in terms of susceptibility that hopefully all of you remember from medical school. One of the questions whenever you're presenting a case on rounds is what's the crucial information you need? And presumably everybody recognizes the CD4 counts and viral loads are important. And if you look at the CD4 counts at which opportunistic infections occur, the association between CD4 counts and opportunistic infections is a very important association, but there are two things that are important to recognize. One is certain things like mycobacterium avium, CMV, uh, and disseminated histo only occur at CD4 counts under 100. So when I say only occur, you'll see them once in a while at higher CD4 counts. But when you get a CD4 count under 100, there are certain things that you will see there that you won't see at higher CD4 counts. The other is that you are often asked what the CD4 count is of your transplant patient or your patient on biologics. There is no other population where the correlation is nearly as strong between the occurrence of an opportunity infection and a CD4 count. So in most other populations, it's really not terribly relevant. It's biologically interesting. There is a correlation with the susceptibility, but it's not nearly as clear as it is with HIV. So this is an association that's important to recognize. It's also important to recognize that the viral load is also essential in terms of what your susceptibility is. So what this slide here shows is how quickly viral loads decline. And to some extent, it depends on what regimen you're on. And you see on the y-axis is the viral load. On the x-axis are days. And you can see that within three weeks, your viral load gets pretty close to uh, below the level of detection. Whatever your CD4 count is, once your viral load goes down, your immune function improves so that you're much less susceptible with a CD4 count of 50 if your viral load is zero than if your viral load is high. So there are really two factors that determine your susceptibility. What we'll also get into later is as soon as your viral load goes down, because your immune function is better, you are more likely to get an iris, an immune reconstitution syndrome, where because of your better immune system, you will have an inflammatory response to whatever pathogens you have in your meninges, your retina, or your lungs. So there are really two factors related to susceptibility. So let's start with the thing that you probably see most common in the ICU, which is pulmonary disease. So, you know, you see an x-ray like this in somebody with HIV. It could be anything. The CD4 count and the viral load will uh, let you know whether this is likely to be an opportunistic infection or not. And obviously, if the CD4 count is over 200 and the viral load is suppressed, 
it's not impossible to be pneumocystis or crypt or histo, but it's just much less likely than the usual viral and bacterial processes. If you look at the etiology of HIV-associated pulmonary diseases, we're going to spend a little bit of time on some things on the left there. So pneumocystis uh, is important, but keep in mind some other things. The most common cause of upper or lower respiratory disease in an HIV-infected patient is not pneumocystis. It's actually pneumococcus. Pneumococcus is much more common, and it's certainly much more common at low CD4 count, but even at a normal CD4 count, with a zero viral load, an HIV-infected patient is more susceptible to pneumococcal bacteremia than a usual patient. So pneumococcus always has to be high on your uh, index of suspicion. But as we'll get into, it really depends also on what the X-ray looks like, whether the sputum is purulent, whether the patient has uh, shaken chills. But keep in mind that pneumococcus is more important than pneumocystis. Haemophilus used to be important, but Encapsulated homophilus are not important anymore in HIV, not because we fixed the immune system of patients with HIV, but because of herd immunity. As more children and adults are immunized for homophilus uh, B, there's less of it in the community, so patients, at least in the United States, are less exposed to homophilus. So that's no longer an important issue. TB is an important issue worldwide. It's not in the United States because we see so little TB, at least outside of Baltimore. And you always have to remember that a patient with HIV is no less likely to get influenza or RSV uh, or mycoplasma than anyone else. So that has to be part of your differential. Look at the issues on the right also. In some of the populations you see, you worry about CMV pneumonia. There are certain populations where mycobacterium avium is an important pulmonary pathogen. And there are certain populations where HSV can cause tracheobronchitis and even pneumonia. But it's interesting that I mentioned before that the immune defect is different for different diseases. With HIV, CMV is never the cause of pulmonary disease. Now, I suspect that, uh, you know, Mike or somebody will say he saw a disease that was uh, confirmed on uh, autopsy or something. Uh, None of these rules are invariably true. But while CMV is an important cause of pulmonary disease, in your stem cell transplants and your solid organs, it virtually never causes disease here. So when you do a BAL and the laboratory tells you that by PCR or ultimately by culture, you find HSV or mycobacterium avium or CMV, almost never is that the cause of pulmonary disease. It colonizes pulmonary secretions. It doesn't cause pulmonary disease unless you have tissue uh, to confirm it. Now, as we'll get into later, if somebody is going down the tubes and you don't have any cause except CMV by PCR, do we get pressured into treating them for CMV? Sure, but almost never is that really the cause of their pulmonary deterioration. Have you ever seen a case of CMV pneumonia here or in Pittsburgh? If you didn't see it in Pittsburgh, it probably doesn't exist. What? Yeah, well, yeah, in other populations, it's it, very common in other populations. And again, you also have to make sure that when you're dealing with a patient with HIV, you don't get focused only on their immunologic problems. So just keep in mind the obvious thing, that they could have diffuse pulmonary infiltrates because they have congestive heart failure, particularly as we see more and more older patients with HIV, as you see more people who have drug-induced cardiac disease due to things like cocaine. You know, there's uh, an element of pulmonary hypertension that... uh, 
uh, is clearly more common in HIV. You know, patients with HIV are more likely to get pulmonary emboli. There are drug toxicities that can certainly give you tachypnea um, and uh, look like respiratory distress, and there are neoplastic areas. So don't focus just on infectious issues. As I mentioned before, don't focus only on opportunistic infections. Look for uh, influenza, mycoplasma, legionella, other things. Uh, keep in mind they have other risk factors, especially when they have IV catheters in, when they're substance abusers and they might aspirate. So don't focus only on that. So let's talk about a few uh, diseases then specifically. And this is pneumocystis. And I, I, I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've been in the micro lab since you were a medical student, but uh, I'm, I assume that doesn't happen very often. So the, nobody ever looks at these organisms, but on the top left is what the typical stain that used to be used for pneumocystis was a methanamine silver. The top right is a gimsa. The bottom right is what we used to look at before we had access to bronchoveal lavage. Pneumocystis gives you a very characteristic histopathology where you get eosinophilic intraalveolar material that just looks like foamy, nonspecific things. But if you stain it, these are all cysts and troughs that are in various uh, uh, stages of, uh, uh, of decay. And then there's some inflammation. Most laboratories now do an immunofluorescent, which we're very pleased was developed in our lab at NIH, and now most laboratories uh, use some variation of that. And we'll talk about how to use that versus some of the more uh, recent things like PCR. So what do we know about pneumocystis? Pneumocystis is really a fascinating organism in that because it cannot be grown in vitro, there's very little known about it. Not only can it not be grown in vitro, but there's no animal model of human pneumocystis. There are animal models of, uh, of uh, rodent pneumocystis, but you can't infect an animal with a human pneumocystis. Each species of pneumocystis is specific to one animal, so that it's been very hard to study. But since this isn't a basic science uh, uh, lecture, uh, I think the concept right now is pneumocystis is a human-to-human -human pathogen. There is no animal reservoir. There's no inanimate reservoir. And we get, all of us get infected early in life, and then we get reinfected multiple times due to exposure to other humans who have been infected. Most of the time in healthy humans, this causes inapparent disease, but if you're immunosuppressed, you have a potential to develop pneumocystis, depending on what your immunologic lesion is, unless, as, as the guy in green there, unless you're on prophylaxis. There's also some interesting situations, again, which I won't talk about here, but there are transplant programs that have epidemics of pneumocystis, or I shouldn't say epidemics, they have outbreaks of pneumocystis, uh, where they will go for years not giving people prophylaxis because they sort of forget about pneumocystis, they don't uh, think it's an issue, and then suddenly they'll have 15 cases in the space of three months. This is presumably because there are some people who are super spreaders who excrete a lot of pneumocystis, and suddenly this gets into a population. You have a whole group of a cluster of patients. The program puts everybody back on prophylaxis. The episode is over. But there are these people who seem to evoke uh, clusters. So in a talk on solid organs, there's a lot of interesting epidemiology about that, but just something you should be aware of. So what is pneumocystis like clinically? There's really nothing very remarkable about it, except that 
this is uh, characteristically a patient who comes in with a nonspecific cough. It's not productive of sputum. They have a fever, but they don't have chills. They don't have uh, purulent sputum. And it's interesting that pneumocystis in an HIV-infected patient is different from a non-HIV-infected patient. If you look at a patient with a stem cell transplant compared to HIV, an HIV-infected patient with pneumocystis is usually subacute. They have been symptomatic for one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. In somebody on steroids or a stem cell, it's usually a two- or three-day illness. So it's much more acute in the non-HIV. It's subacute in HIV. So there is a biologic difference. And the patients with HIV tend not to be as sick when they come in. Uh, so even though they've had disease for a longer period of time, they're not as hypoxic. Uh, and again, CE4 counts are a good marker in HIV. And one of the unusual things about pneumocystis compared to a lot of things is that here I have some examples of extrapulmonary pneumocystis. But these were very hard to come by, and in 30-plus uh, years of NIH, these are probably the only cases of pneumocystis outside the lungs that I can find. So this is a very unusual organism in that it only grows in the lungs. So there have been cases in the liver, the spleen, the kidneys. There have been uh, retinal lesions that have been identified at autopsy. We published a really fascinating case about 25 years ago of somebody who had disseminated pneumocystis and all uh, his capillaries were clogged up. But there's something unique about this organism that only lives uh, in the lung. And again, since this isn't a basic science talk, uh, I'm not going to tell you a lot about this. But for a long time, we didn't understand anything about pneumocystis because, as I said before, you can't grow it in vitro and you can't at least study the human form in an animal model. You can uh, study the rodent form. But uh, in the past few years, the same person who um, uh, made the immunofluorescent antibody that's used in the micro lab was able to sequence human pneumocystis. Am I looking to see what genes are there and, as importantly, what genes are not there? There are a variety of amino acids and uh, glucose uh, that can't be metabolized by this organism. So it's developed a way of getting its essential nutrients from pneumocytes not from other organisms. So now we're beginning to understand why it only sits in the lung. And the hope is that by understanding this, we'll be able to develop better ways to either prevent or treat the disease. But again, I think while uh, I was saying uh, uh, before uh, to Andrea that there are only about 15 people in the world who are interested in the biology of pneumocystis, I think there is something to be learned there. I think we probably will know more about that in the years to come. So again, if you look at the x-ray of uh, pneumocystis, Generally, as I think all of you realize, there are a variety of different radiologic presentations, but this can start out as a patchy infiltrate, as you see on the left. Uh, it is classically called diffuse and interstitial, but the point here is that it can be patchy. So diffuse and interstitial is the majority of cases, but it does present with alveolar infiltrates. On the right there, you see alveolar infiltrates. I think the issue is if you wait long enough, after it's diffuse and interstitial, you will see alveolar infiltrate. So it really just depends on how sick the patient is. So again, diffuse interstitial is characteristic, symmetric, bilateral, uh, but uh, you can certainly see other variations. So again, I showed you what the organism looked like. If you look over the last 50 years at how we diagnosed this, um, I guess I'm old enough that uh, 
uh, we used to only do open lung biopsies uh, to make this. So that was one of the reasons that at least early in the epidemic, uh, people knew very little about pneumocystis because most of the cases were either diagnosed at autopsy uh, or when patients were in extremis. But gradually we went from open lung biopsy to transbronchial biopsy to bronchoalveolovage to sputum. Do you all do sputums here? Yeah. I mean, in our institution, I'd say we almost never miss a case with a sputum. But it all depends on how much time your respiratory therapists have to collect a sputum, uh, where the laboratory will spin it down, how carefully they look at it. But induced sputum can be a great diagnostic technique. And again, we've gone from methanamine silver to um, uh, immunofluorescence. I think now most labs use immunofluorescence. And then the question is PCR. As we get into multiplex assays, more and more laboratories do PCR. Do you use PCR here or do you use just stains? Yeah, nobody goes to the micro lab, so who would know? <laughs> but I think that you know, one of the things that you, know, you deal with in pulmonary and critical care is now that people start using multiplex assays, you get a lot of information, but I don't think it's at all clear what to do with the information because I think, as we all know, PCR is very sensitive. It's so sensitive, it's just not specific. Because just so that you, just because you find uh, influenza or pneumococcus or pneumocystis, or as we'll talk about later, cryptococcus by PCR, that doesn't mean that that's the cause of the infiltrate. So the, if the question is, what's the interpretation of a positive BAL? If you come from a hospital that is cost conscious and doesn't do stains anymore and just do BAL, what do you do if the BAL? PCR is positive, and that's all they do. Well, first of all, like any PCR, the PCR is extremely sensitive, and it has a high biologic specificity. So if the PCR is positive, I think you can be quite convinced that there are pneumocystis organisms in the specimen. The problem is you don't know whether the patients colonize or whether they have disease. It would be nice to think that you can make this quantitative, but the problem is all of you know better than all of your colleagues is that when you do a BAL, it depends where you sample, uh, how much fluid you uh, put in. So there's a lot of sampling artifact in terms of how many, spe how many organisms you get out in your sputum, so in, in your sample, in your BAL. So that the quantitation is helpful, but it's not definitive. So I think as far as I can see, a PCR that is negative rules out pneumocystis as a diagnosis, at least on a BAR. If it's positive, if you can't get a stain, then you have to make a clinical judgment. So hopefully here they're doing stains. And any time you see an organ to buy a stain, you have to assume that's the cause of pulmonary dysfunction. Or if the patient doesn't have pulmonary dysfunction and you're biopsying them because they have a nodule or something, uh, you better assume they're going to get sick and you need to treat them. So stain equates to need to treat. A PCR, you have to use your clinical judgment. So again, it's very good as a negative. It's not so good as a positive. Now, sometimes when you do BAL and you send it for cytology, do you send yours for cytology here? Presume? Yeah. Uh, you'll get a CMV inclusion body. I mentioned before that CMV doesn't have any relevance to pulmonary disease in HIV. Uh, we did a study a number of years ago when we used to do biopsies in which we looked at people with pneumocystis who had CMV inclusion bodies on their biopsy versus those who didn't. And this was actually long enough ago that we didn't have gancyclovir, so we didn't have anything to treat it. But the people at pneumocystis and CMV has ju had just as good an outcome as the people at pneumocystis and no CMV. So I think this suggested to us 
that CMV had no clinical relevance. So again, stem cell transplant patients on biologics, a completely different story. But in this population, if you see CMV, unless you're really desperately looking for an unusual cause of pulmonary dysfunction, I think you should ignore it. <clears throat> Another test which is often debated at pulmonary meetings and ID meetings is the serum beta-glucan test. I assume you do that often here. Yeah. So the serum beta-glucan is a great test for fungi. It just doesn't tell you which fungi. So uh, actually, Paul Sachs uh, is um, uh, the editor of one of the Harvard ID newsletters, and he and I debate this at some meeting every other year, and he thinks that the fungal tell uh, beta-glucan is a great test for pneumocystis, and I think it's a terrible test. I don't think either, either of us has changed our minds in the last 20 years. But um, uh, if you look at the data, I'll show you the data. This is his study from clinical infectious disease. And if you look at pneumocystis here, you can see either a high or low beta-glucan. If you look at people at other diseases, of course, it depends what other diseases, they can also be high or low. <clears throat> so he would maintain that if you see a negative beta-glucan, that probably rules out pneumocystis, and that's probably true, although uh, he doesn't have a lot of uh, um, uh, data down that end of the spectrum. But if you have a, um, a moderate to high beta-glucan, I think you don't know whether that's due to mucosal candida or whether the pulmonary disease is really due to histo or crypto or something else. So I think that while there's live discussion about beta-glucan, I think that the clinical utility is sort of like the PCR. If it's positive, it could be pneumocystis, but it also could be a lot of other fungi, molds or yeast. But if it's negative, uh, I would grant that, like a PCR, that's uh, a good uh, test. So there really is no other serologic test. I'm not going to say much about uh, uh, therapy. Trimethyl sulfa is clearly the most effective and the least toxic option. Uh, there is a lot of data all on the alternatives, Parental pentamidine, atropoquin, clindoprimoquin, each has its problems. And I think if you're not going to use trimethamisulfa, you probably ought to get an ID consult unless you have a lot of experience. Because pentamidine is very effective but very toxic. Atropoquin is not easy to absorb and probably a drug you should not be using in the ICU because of absorption problems. Clindoprimoquin, I've always been very skeptical about because the primoquin is only oral. But in fact, if you look at the trials, clindoprimoquin is just as good as any, as, is actually just as good as trimethamisulfa according to the trials. So I think clindoprimoquin is probably the best option, even though the primoquin is oral. Uh, but um, I think that's a complicated equation that at least bears some thoughts. One of the things I think was not intuitive in terms of treating pneumocystis is the use of corticosteroids. Uh, when someone first suggested that pneumocystis ought to be treated with steroids when they do, weren't doing well. I'd say I was more than a little bit skeptical because decreasing somebody's immunity doesn't seem like a good idea when the reason they got pneumocystis was altered immunity. But the argument was that pneumocystis causes inflammation, especially when the organism is being killed by a drug, and that if you could reduce that inflammation, the patient wouldn't have the characteristic decline, which you always see when you treat somebody with pneumocystis, or almost always. Usually the first few days they get worse before they get better. 
And then it's probably not because the organism is still growing. It's probably because the organism is dying and causing inflammation and therefore hypoxemia. And the patient winds up on valeria, winds up dying. So this trial was done despite the skepticism. And in fact, if you give steroids to any patient with pneumocystis, they will do better. Now, the only written indication is for moderate to severe pneumocystis because that's the only trial that could be done with an endpoint that could be easily measured, namely death or going on ventilator. But even if you take, I wouldn't advocate giving it to people with mild pneumocystis, but in fact, when that was done, you will not see the same dip in hypoxemia that you see without steroids. So steroids clearly improve the course of pneumocystis. And if somebody comes in with a PO2 of 70 uh, or less on Romare, uh, you should give steroids. So there's no downside to doing that. And all the concerns that you would reactivate mycobacterium or TB or CMV or capacities have shown with a 21-day course not to be uh, true. Now, can pneumocystis be resistant to trimethamsulfa? There's a lot of interesting data about that, but from a clinical point of view, if somebody's feeling trimethamsulfa, it's almost certainly not due to resistance. And whether switching drugs is really useful, I think it's been debated for 30 years. But if somebody is on trimethamsulfa and they're not doing well, after four to eight days, which is the average time to improvement, you might want to switch. But just make sure you're not missing something else that is uh, uh, you know, at least plausible. I mean, you know, there are plenty of these patients that we fluid overload. Uh, if you started antiretroviral therapy, which you probably wouldn't, you know, could it be immune reconstitution syndrome? Patients could get methemoglobinemia if you're giving them uh, clinda and primaquin. Uh, pneumothorax, I didn't say anything about pneumothorax, but pneumothorax is a real issue to watch for with pneumocystis because pneumocystis as an organism uh, causes very uh, um, uh, unique pneumatoceles in which you'll get necrosis of lung. And when that occurs near the pleura, you can get a pneumothorax. So what's often on the boards, both the critical care and the ID boards, is somebody with HIV who comes in with a diffuse infiltrate on one side and a pneumothorax on the other. Now, the fact is, that could be due to TB, lymphoma, lots of different things. But what they like to ask you about is pneumocystis. So I'm not sure that you could really say that this is pneumocystis more than something else. But it's something that happens, so you have to look for the non-infectious complications. And it's always worth rebronking the patient. Because I think the older literature would suggest that about 5% of the time you'll find pneumococcus or cryptococcus or histo or something else that's treatable. So let's move on to a different uh, disease. Toxo is something that in pulmonary critical care you don't see very often. It's really, in many situations, an asymptomatic disease. So not that you really want to know the natural history of toxo until it gets to the ICU. Just remember that this is a disease that you pick up from cat feces or from undercooked meat. Most people who acquire this don't have any symptoms. And it's much more common in Europe where they eat more undercooked meat than we do. But it's about 20% of the population is seropositive here, about 70% of the people in Europe. Uh, and about 95% of the people here will never have any symptoms. 5% will have a mono-like syndrome in which it's like mono without the sore throat. They get fever, fatigue, lymphadenopathy. But once you recover either from your asymptomatic or your mono-like illness, it becomes latent. And if your immunity is abnormal, it becomes latent in your brain and in your viscera. And HIV patients, interestingly enough, 
tend to um, uh, activate it in the brain and not in other places. Your organ transplants, your solid organ transplants, your stem cells often get visceral disease. HIV patients once in a while get visceral disease. It's much more often cerebral. So when you have somebody who comes in with a lesion like this, uh, the first two things you think about in somebody with HIV or lymphoma or toxo, if their CD4 count is under 100, it could be toxo or lymphoma. If it's over 100, it's lymphoma or some other things. So the differential diagnosis is long. Toxo and lymphoma are the top one and two, but it could be TB, it could be crypt, it could be enocardia, it could be a glioblastoma unrelated to HIV. So there's nothing specific about the imaging of this. Uh, there are studies you can do short of a brain biopsy. Uh, if they're toxo IgG or seronegative, it almost certainly is not toxo. Uh, you can get a serum PCR. If it's safe to do a uh, LP, you can get a, a, a CSF cryptogen and toxo PCR. That will help you. Uh, so again, by appearance, you can't tell what it is. These other tests that I've listed here, they're mostly fungal serologies, and CSF may give you the diagnosis, but often they don't, and then you're left with empiric therapy. So generally what you'll do with somebody with a large lesion like that is if their CD4 count is under 100, their toxo IgG is antibody positive, they were not on prophylaxis, and prophylaxis is very effective for preventing toxo, then you'll put them on therapy. And if you look at therapy, the reason we usually wait two weeks to see if they respond is shown in this graph here. So this is uh, 35 patients who actually got clindopyrimethamine. Uh, and you can see here that within 10 days, about half of them have shown a clinical and radiologic response. Within two weeks, 90% responded. So if your patient has not responded in two weeks, you need to start thinking about whether you need to do something else. And almost always that something else is a brain biopsy. But again, this is why we wait for two weeks. So again, the preferred regimen is sulfa and pyrimethamine. It's very hard to get either sulfadiazine or pyrimethamine in this day and age. And there's now more and more data that trimethamine sulfa is just as good. And in the ICU, it's obviously easier to use trimethamine sulfa because the drug is IV and sulfa pyrimethamine is oral. So it's easier just to use trimethamine sulfa. So even though sulfa and pyrimethamine is a preferred regimen, in the ICU, we almost always use trimethamine sulfa because that's an IV regimen. There are some other regimens you can use. We, we do not routinely use steroids unless there's an increase in intracranial pressure, nor do we put the patients on anticonvulsants until they have their first seizure. So toxo is something, if it's a single lesion, you think lymphoma or toxo. What's another common uh, disease? Another common disease is cryptococcosis. Uh, so there are a few things to know about cryptococcus. You all deal with meningitis you know, all the time, but cryptococcal meningitis, particularly in HIV, tends to be a more subacute disease. Generally, the patients have been symptomatic for a couple of weeks, and 25% of the patients who have meningeal disease will not have meningeal signs and symptoms. So they'll have a fever, you'll be trying to figure them out, and then somebody will do an LP and find they have uh, a positive uh, cryptogen. Uh, and these are almost all patients of a CD4 account under 100. Now, there, some, there are a couple of new things to know about a diagnosis. I think everybody in this room probably knows that if you have cryptococcal meningitis, the burden of cryptococcus in an HIV patient is so high 
that the serum cryptogen will be positive. So in an HIV-infected patient, if the serum cryptogen is negative, you almost never have cryptococcal meningitis. So the cryptogen is a very sensitive and highly specific uh, test, and there, there's almost never a false positive. There are some false positives I've lifted there, but they're very unusual. One thing you have to realize is that as labs try to get uh, more and more cost-conscious, some labs now have gone to a dipstick called a lateral flow assay, and I would be surprised if anybody here knew whether your lab did a dipstick or not. Uh, but the point with a dipstick is the titers look much higher. They're fourfold higher than with the cryptogen, and the test is not as sensitive as the cryptogen. So again, once in a while, you'll find somebody who is negative on the lateral flow be positive on the antigen. And the only way you're going to know that if you're in a cost-effective uh, zone where the lab only does the lateral flow is that five or six days later, the culture will come back positive, And then you say, oops, I should have treated the patient. That's the reason not to use the lateral flow, but because cost is an issue, many places don't uh, use that. The other issue is PCR. Uh, Cryptococcus is on the BioFire CSF uh, panel. Uh, it's on a lot of the other commercial panels as well. And this is like the pneumocystis, well, this actually is not exactly like the pneumocystis PCR, in that the pneumocystis PCR is extremely sensitive, and a negative PCR will rule out pneumocystis. With crypt, a negative PCR on the multiplex does not rule out crypt. It is not that sensitive. So if you have a suspicion of crypt and the multiplex is positive, great, they have cryptococcal meningitis. If it's negative and you're really suspicious, you have to ask the lab to do a cryptogen or maybe a lateral flow. So just uh, keep that in mind. So again, the PCR is not the final word for crypt. So again, the, the problem in this day and age is it's so easy to get a PCR on a stool or a spinal fluid or something else. It's just that it's not so easy to interpret the results. Therapy, I think everybody knows, is liposomal AMFO. Everybody wants to know, do I really have to use flucytosine? And the answer is yes, you really have to use flucytosine because they really do better with that. Uh, can you use fluconazole instead of amphotericin? No, you can't because the results are much worse. So the uh, initial regimen is liposomal amphotericin and flucytosine. If any of you have a special interest in this, there are some very interesting studies that have used less than two weeks. Uh, I don't think that's ready for prime time now, but it might be you can get away with 10 days or a week or three days but there is not enough data to say that. So it's two weeks of liposomal AMFO with flucytosine. That should be the standard, and actually I'm going to skip that. The other important thing to recognize with uh, cryptococcus is the reason people die is not so much that you're not treating the crypt, it's that you're not managing the increased intracranial pressure. So it's very important that you measure the, the, uh, the uh, opening pressure. And if it's greater than 20 and the patient has any symptoms, then the patient needs to be tapped daily or as they develop symptoms until those symptoms go away. The biggest reason for death, particularly outside the United States, is that patients don't have their uh, uh, intracranial pressure monitored. And it's been shown that mannitol and steroids uh, and uh, Dimox are not effective. What's effective is tapping them regularly, and you have to make a decision as to when you've tapped them enough and they need a shunt. And there's no rule for that, but some of these patients need a shunt. Uh, if you tap them, I don't know how many times do you, do you ever put in shunts here for cryptococcal meningitis? I'm sure, huh? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you don't do it anymore. You haven't seen one recently. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it happens, but that's something. 
If they get symptomatic, you've got to make sure you tap them again and keep their pressure down. Uh, and then, uh, uh, does anybody know what this is? Oh, this, so you all know more about horticulture than microbiology. This is very good. Uh, yeah, so this is Iris. So the last thing I'll talk about is, you know, the question is, when do you start antiretroviral therapy? In the ICU, I suspect you're not going to be starting antiretroviral therapy probably ever because you don't know whether the patient is going to absorb it. They have drug interactions. Uh, the patient's not ready. Uh, but sometimes you'll send somebody out to the floor. Somebody will start antiretroviral therapy. And then again, you just have to recognize that within days of starting antiretroviral, as soon as that viral load goes down, even if the CD4 count has not gone up, then you may um, uh, get uh, uh, an immune reconstitution syndrome. Uh, so um, that can manifest as increased inflammation any place that you have antigen. So if you have CMV, latent CMV in your retina, you can have a flare of, your, of retinitis if you've never seen it before. If you had TB and didn't know you had it in your meninges, you start any retrovirals and you'll see it. If you had something in your lymph nodes, you'll see it. So that can happen days, weeks, or months later. It usually is due to some mycobacteria, typical or atypical, or to some kind of fungus. And what you'll see is, for instance, here is a patient who had lymphadenopathy on their cervical area, but within a couple of weeks of starting antiretroviral, they actually needed a trach because they had compression of their uh, trachea due to this massive adenopathy that began to superate. And this was all due to mycobacteria. Uh, this had not been recognized beforehand. They decided um, we had actually advocated they do a biopsy of that node. They didn't. They just started antiretroviral therapy. And then as the nodes got bigger, they um, did a biopsy of the node, which turned out to be MAC. But the patient wound up getting a trach. And I'm not sure there's any way to prevent that, but this can just be pretty impressive. If you, This is another patient who was not known to have an opportunistic infection, seemed to be well, started with a CD4 count of 50 or 60 with antiretroviral therapy, and then developed chest pain. And this again turned out to be mycobacterium avium. Uh, and this is another patient with uh, nodes. But any place you have nodes or any place you have latent organisms, you can see this. There is no way to predict it's going to happen, so there's no way to prevent it. And the data on what to do is not clear. Almost always, if you biopsy this and find an organism, you should treat it, although a few brave people have treated only with antiretrovirals, and often you get away with that, because often it's not the proliferating organism, it's the immune response. But I think the prudent thing to do is to find out if there's an organism there, there isn't always, to treat the organism and uh, to continue your antiretrovirals. Sometimes you're pushed into using steroids. There are no rules for how much or when you do it when clinically indicated. But iris is a big problem. And once in a while, you'll see somebody come into the unit with an obstructed ureter, an obstructed bowel, uh, with some neck pathology that needs your intervention. So I think, in summary, HIV is clearly here to stay. I think even though Baltimore has made really tremendous and I think really commendable progress in dealing with HIV on a citywide basis, you're going to continue to see new cases. You're going to see people who are not on antiretroviral therapy. And you're going to have to know how to manage this. And again, as one goes around the country, it's really impressive that if you train at a place like the University of Maryland, you see these diseases and you know them. You train in a lot of cities in the United States, 
And you ask if anybody's ever seen a case of age-related pneumocystis or toxocrypto, nobody's ever seen it. So you see a tremendous patient population here, and I'm sure that you'll remember them so that when you go elsewhere, uh, you'll be the expert uh, on how to treat them. So thanks very much. There must be somebody who either has a question or something they want to debate. And Andrea's going to tell me that they did it differently in Pittsburgh. No? Do you know the work? Yeah, yeah, I could hear you. Yeah. Okay. Um, can you speak to whether or not uh, you are seeing, uh, because we do have such a population, if we are seeing uh, anything that you've ever seen described in terms of an increase in autoimmune disease among people who are in a recovery phase? Yeah. Well, I think that's a good question about autoimmune disease because, first, first of all, there's certainly an increase in inflammatory disease. So if you look at the accelerated cardiovascular disease, renal disease, liver disease, it is well described uh, in terms of basic immunology and clinical things that there is ongoing inflammation even after you control the viremia. If somebody's viral load is undetectable for 10 years, they are still at increased risk for uh, stroke, MI, organ dysfunction. In terms of a vasculitis, there is a literature on vasculitis. I, I'm not aware that if you look specifically for lupus, or uh, cerebral vasculitis, or any of the syndromes that you can find those described. But there's certainly inflammation, including vascular inflammation. And again, it is interesting that there, that this latent viral reservoir is not so latent in terms of uh, causing uh, inflammation. And that is a major area of investigation with major clinical trials on both how to define it and what to do about it. Uh, thank you. That was great. Um, the RID doctors like to go by CD4 percent, or they like to use that as an adjunct to just CD4 count. I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, please. Yeah. Well, it depends whether you're a connoisseur or an amateur. Uh, so the amateurs like to use CD4 counts because, uh, uh, yeah, it, just to give you a little piece of history, this was a big debate about 25 years ago as to whether you should use percents or absolute numbers. And the immunologists all said the percents are much more accurate, which is true. But what won the day was that most doctors could only understand absolute numbers, and they were used to absolute numbers, so we would keep it that way. Changing was too complicated. So they're right. The percentages are more accurate. They fluctuate less. But all the CDC data was based on absolute numbers, so it's just kept that way. And I, don't, I think from a practical point of view, it doesn't make that much difference because there, there shouldn't be any decision that uh, determines whether the CD4 count is 100 or 200, whether the percent is 13 or 20 percent. Because one of the slides I didn't show you is while we have all these rules that certain diseases only occur under 100, under 200, there are exceptions to every rule. These are biologic variables. So in fact, if you look at pneumocystis, 10% of the cases occur at CD4 counts over 300. 
So when somebody comes in with a pulmonary infection, if their CD4 count is 500, that doesn't mean that pneumocystis is impossible. It just means it's unlikely. So you're saying everything I told you is worthless. Okay, I could tell your expression. I have two surgery amateur questions. Uh, does the presence of HIV with no detectable viral load count and uh, normal cell counts prevent healing after a major trauma? Should it impart a healing deficit in an otherwise normal person? Uh, and the second one is, if someone has uh, had their CD4 counts drop to the point where they are defined as an AIDS patient, and then they're counts recover uh, they have let's say they have an opportunistic disease seek treatment uh have their counts recover are they still defined as an aids patient or are they back in hiv positive status these are largely academic debates we've had amongst a bunch of surgeons who don't actually know the answer yeah. well first of all in terms of wound healing i don't know of a study that has looked at that but i'm not aware of any uh any movement to suggest that if you have HIV, your wound healing is going to be worse, all other things considered. Now, if you're cachectic and your albumin is uh, nothing, you know, you're, there are other reasons they, they wouldn't do well. But if it's just your HIV and otherwise you're a good surgical risk, I don't think you're any more likely to develop uh, a poor closure or an infection than anybody else. In terms of AIDS, you're right, it is an academic uh, discussion because the whole issue of defining somebody's AIDS came in the pre blood test era where they needed to find the syndrome, and they defined it as having uh, pneumocystis or crypto or toxo. Once we had a blood test and, and CD4 count, we really should stop using that. And the question is just, do you have HIV and how immunosuppressed you are? So for counting, the CDC will count you as uh, uh, how you originally presented. But I think from a practical point of view, that's really more historic than useful. Just to follow up on the first question a little bit further, what about an HIV patient who's not necessarily been st risk stratified for surgery and endures a major trauma that requires an operative trauma, for instance? In that scenario, since you're relying on the immune response at a much higher level to heal systemic polytrauma, uh, does that impart a healing deficit from what you can tell? Well, I mean, again, I think it, it would be logical to assume that if their cell-mediated immunity isn't uh, optimal, that there would be some deficit. But I think for most wor surgical wound handling, you're not relying on cell-mediated immunity uh, for at least a lot of it. So, uh, again, I don't know of any data with trauma. The HIV patient has a worse prognosis than other people. But, you know, it's so, it's so hard to do those studies. Um, uh, and, again, if you're aware of something, even anecdotes, I'd be interested. But... Uh, I don't know of any data suggesting that wound healing is any different. Get over. I just want to put this out there. Dr. Redfield has now said that we're going to have an opportunity to end the AIDS pandemic in seven years. Do you want to comment on You're saying it's here to stay. Uh, when, 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 first of all, are you Dr. Redfield's son? Only when I apply for yeah, no, I never disagree with uh, Dr. Redfield. Well, first of all, I think, obviously, he's saying we're going to stop all transmission. But if it were easy, we wouldn't have any syphilis left. 
And, you know, syphilis you can treat with one uh, uh, dose of benzathine for 50 cents, and we haven't done that well there. So we may be able to reduce the case. Whether we're really going to get every homeless, uninsured individual uh, to uh, uh, use pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, and to stop transmission, I would doubt. But I think we can certainly do, do much better than we do. And in Baltimore, I never disagree with Dr. Redfield. I'm a neurointensivist, and we, we see from time to time uh, some pretty fulminant PML, which you haven't gotten to. And I uh, was wondering your thoughts on some of the adjuvant therapies that, that I think the data is poor and um, mostly anecdotal, and the studies that have been done are, are not great. But um, do you believe in any of the adjuvant therapies, mirtazapine, mefloquine, et cetera? And uh, is there anything else coming our way? Because these are difficult patients to treat. Yeah, well, first of all, I think with PML, until fairly recently, there was really nothing to do except reconstitute their immunity. So you start the antiretrovirals and hope for the best, and sometimes that worked and sometimes that didn't. I don't think any of the drugs that you mentioned have shown anything. There's, you know, Again, I, you have to be careful when you're talking to an expert uh, uh, neurointensivist. You probably know more than I do about the PD-1 inhibitors uh, and the, uh, uh, and the uh, uh, JC-directed um, uh, uh, T cell uh, therapies. Some of them have shown very promising results, but there are very small numbers of cases. It's not clear what the long term follow up. So I think there are some interesting cell based therapies uh, uh, coming along, uh, and maybe the PD1 inhibitors will be uh, useful, but I think that's an aspiration rather than evidence. But I think all the other things uh, uh, have been pretty disappointing. We have, we have now one. Have you had success with anything else? No, I mean, I think we, we were really encouraged by um, uh, the PD-1 inhibitor. The first study that came out and the second uh, kind of showed perhaps that we shouldn't be so encouraged, so we're, we're starting back. At, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the whole trouble with PD-1 inhibitors, obviously, is, is it depends what dose you're using and which drug you're using and uh, what penetration. So at least I think there's some hope there that there's a signal of activity, whether it's ever going to be effective therapy for very many people, I don't know. But the hope is, obviously, that if we identify people early, they won't get PML. But admittedly, some people, even with good CD4 counts, still will develop symptomatic PML. Is what you said about some of these other disease processes the same in that somehow uh, perhaps PML in, a, in an HIV patient, is that distinct from PML in a natalizumab-treated patient or, or other immunosuppressed patient? Yeah, this is always a problem when the neurologist is asking me questions about neurology. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but, you know, the problem with HIV, obviously, is you, it's not as easy to reverse the immune suppression. You can put them on antiretrovirals. That helps some of the problem, not all the problem. You stop the natalizumab, and you restore their immunity to normal. Now, they may have other problems. So I think it really depends on what you can do with what, what the underlying immunity is. But the natural history of PML, you know better than I do, is so variable, it, it's hard to get a sense of, uh, you know, with 100 cases here, 100 cases there, of whether the natural history is really very different. But I think it really depends on, their, on what you can do with their underlying immunity. I'm very impressed that I'm three minutes over and none of you have left, but, uh, yeah. I have just one quick question. I remember, I, I remember distinctly when I was a resident here that there were many pulmonary consults for patients who had HIV or AIDS for uh, pneumocystis, 
And part of that was because we couldn't get induced sputums for whatever reason. Respiratory wasn't helpful or the patient wasn't compliant. And so the consult was always to do a bronchoscopy. So the question is, can you use a combination of serum biomarkers such as beta-deglucan, LDH, anything else to get a reliable uh, sensitivity and specificity to say this HIV patient probably does have pneumocystis and we don't have to take them to the Bronx suite? Have you been co-opted by the hospital administration? Uh, Not yet. Well, well, I I think, you know, it depends. You have to be practical. I mean, if you want a specific diagnosis, I think right now you need to see the organism in sputum or lavage. If you want a pretty good estimate, sure, you can use uh, beta-glucan if you want. Um, I mean, a a PCR in sputum is not very helpful. but I think, again, you really do need a good respiratory specimen. And the problem is, you know, again, it's really staffing. If respiratory therapy isn't staffed so there's somebody who can spend 20 minutes or half an hour with somebody getting a good specimen, you're not going to do well. And that's sort of out of your control as to how well respiratory is staffed. Okay, good. Thank you.